Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we explore the inspirations behind Gary Gygax, a man who may have been conspiring with fungi from outer space when he co-created Dungeons and Dragons. Today we will learn about malevolent forces like the fungi from outer space that lurk just beyond our understanding as we delve into three tales by H.P. Lovecraft. Every episode of Appendix N will feature a different story or collection of stories. My co-host Jeff Wickstrom and I, along with any guests who choose to accompany us, will review the story and talk about how it may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you would like to be part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me, as always, is my co-host. Welcome back, Jeff Wickstrom. Always a pleasure. And joining me are my special guests, Chris Constantine. Pleased to be here. And Jeremiah McCoy. Hi, Leo there. So we have a packed house as we discuss our next trio of Lovecraft stories. We've we've been doing um, longer stories the last couple of Lovecraft episodes, but we're we're back to the short story format. Although short is comparative. Uh, the first on the docket tonight is The Whisperer in Darkness, and uh, Wikipedia tells me it was written from February to September 1930, so over the course of almost a year he was writing this, and was published in Weird Tales, August 1931. Uh, Jeremiah, do you want to tell me what is, what is Whisperer in Darkness about? Uh, Whisper in Darkness is the possibly the most classic of H.P. Lovecraft's setups. Uh, a scholar is scoffing at the notion of uh, uh, any sort of supernatural or folklore uh, ties to a phenomenon, and he gets contacted by somebody who, who explains that, no, no, those things are real, and through correspondence and direct evidence is convinced of it, then goes there, and discovers that, yes, there are terrible things for beyond the, uh, the stars that are uh, uh, trying to uh, subvert humanity. Uh, Chris Constantine, what are the terrible things beyond the stars that are trying to subvert humanity? Well, they're known as Miko. They are essentially sentient fungus from what is known as Yugoth in their world, and we eventually were determined to be Pluto in ours. They're basically a interplanetary race, for lack of a better term, that has advanced to the point where they can survive in deep space with minimal requirements. However, they were hampered by our gravity, our atmosphere, etc., when it comes to actually moving around, to the point where it was plausible, at least in the short term, that we could stand a chance at them until they managed to amass, say, an army or something. Additionally, they were obviously not liked by animals, most notably the dogs that were used to protect the scientists for, you know, to the uh, local 
bumpkin, for lack of a better term. Yeah, poor poor, poor dogs. He he loses quite a score of them. Yeah. Lovecraft was always more of a cat person anyway. Right. I know this is the uh, this is another situation where a dog really makes the difference, though, since a dog also took out uh, Wilbur Whateley, as I as I recall. Yeah, he he, he often uh, uses them from brute force, but he also seems to kill them a lot in a number of stories. But yeah, he 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 definitely does seem to be more of a of, of a cat person. So the the first half or, or maybe even even more than half of this story is a a correspondence between our protagonist a a professor by the name of of Wilmarth and a reclusive farmer by the name of of Akeley and uh there the 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 story begins with with news reports of some flooding in Vermont and uh, some some bodies that are, are not quite human are, are seen floating down down a river, and Wilmarth is this professor of uh, folklore, New England folklore, I guess. And uh, these these bodies bring bring to mind these these legends that the hill folk in Ver- Vermont have. And uh, as as Chris and and Jer- Jeremiah said, these 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 are the are the Migo. And Akeley writes to Wilmarth to uh, to explain that basically these these Migo are are real. He's he's seen them or he he has evidence of them. So we we, we have the interesting case of having not one but two unreliable narrators. I mean, both of these of these people could very easily be making up all this stuff uh, to each each other. Um, Wilmarth mentions over and, and and over again that all the evidence has been destroyed. All the all the letters from from Akeley, the the uh, re, the the uh, audio recording. So we could we could trust Wilmarth, or we could regard him as a madman because, conveniently, all all, all the evidence has been lost. Right. Yeah, well, I don't think that we're given in the text a particular reason to consider Wilmarth to be an unreliable narrator, um, particularly when Akeley is right there making ludicrous claims. And, um, you know, at the end we find out that he's had his brain taken out um, by the Migo. So he obviously isn't trustworthy at the point when it's not Akeley talking, but rather a puppet being operated by the Migo. Uh, like that one episode of Star Trek, the original series with the puppet, and it turns out to be um, Clint Howard. Well, maybe maybe I'm just using the term unreliable narrator incorrectly then. Um, well, but- his his information is incomplete, and in that he is an unreliable narrator. But, uh, you know, he is not an unreliable narrator in that you don't think he's lying, and you don't think he's... Uh, an idiot. Uh, he just no. has incomplete information. Yeah, like for instance, he um, he sort of passes on references made to the King in Yellow and the Haster cult, which my interpretation was always that that was sort of a a false flag operation by the Migo, who were Cthulhu cultists. Yeah, yeah. We there's there's sort of this this weird subplot where there's we're told that the Migo can easily conquer the human race, but they don't want to bother. So they go through all this trouble to hide themselves. But then we're told because that's that, so much easier, right? 
but but then we're told that there's there's also this this other secret cult that that opposes the Migo on behalf of Haster, the king in yellow, and you you think that this secret cult would benefit from the Migo becoming public knowledge so that they could fight them more easily, but no, they're even more secretive than than the Migo, and the, and there's this there's this underground war going on, but then. We're not. We're not even sure that this secret Haster cult is 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 even real. Yeah, it's an it's an odd little side note in the story, which I think adds a level of texture to the story that is is really interesting. I think the Whisperer in Darkness is probably my favorite Lovecraft story, and it's because of these different layers to it. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot going on under the surface in this story. I, I think that they have um, uh, one of the things that Lovecraft does supremely well is he interweaves uh, mythos stuff, uh, stuff that he created, and s- some stuff that other people created, and real world science and and scholarship. And you really have to know your you know your stuff as far as early twentieth century science to know where he's making up stuff and the real stuff begins. Um, and I, I think this story really captures that a lot. Yeah, and, and I, I particularly noticed in, in these three stories that, that we're going to talk about, about tonight, that, like this is where he really starts referencing the, the mythos over and over and and over again. He he didn't like going going through his his works more or less in in chronological order and we're not we're not strictly going chronological order but doing it doing it this way like you can you can really see you know way way back in 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 Doom that came to Sarnath and 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 from beyond like like the mythos didn't even really exist and and then with with Call of Cthulhu and 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 dream quest like he's he's building up this this um pantheon of of deities and and you know the 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 necronomicon and and all these books that he that he he references so he's he's full on into that part of his of his writing what were you going to say jeff i think that if he wrote the whisper in darkness just a few years ago uh, in his in his life, there would have probably been no reference to uh, Cthulhu, and there certainly would have been no reference to the King in Yellow. Um, that kind of little little bit of, of shading is uh, exactly exactly what he was what he was kind of building to at this stage. And yeah. the, the 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 ending actually really reminded me of um, Charles Dexter Ward because we're okay so. Spoilers: the 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 ending is is a is is a buildup to our protagonist Wilmarth finding out that that Akeley has been his his brain has been put in a in a jar and the man who he's been talking to that 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 he thought was Akeley was actually one one of the Migo wearing a wax mask and and, and a wax pair pair of arms and I immediately thought of of the false beard from from Charles Dexter Ward which which actually you know was was not published in 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 Lovecraft's lifetime so i mean he 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 basically took a device from that story that that he didn't and reused publish. it yeah, yeah. and and re- reused it and 
it's I don't know. Like it, it. <laughs> I think it works better here uh, because Wilmarth is fooled for a much briefer period of time, mm-hmm. and he has plenty of reason to be distracted by all of the other things that are going on. And and it's not broad daylight. Yeah. Yeah. It's he. It's he's there. He's, there's there's uh, what candlelight, firelight, mm-hmm. um, and he. Uh, the airsats Akeley takes care to tell him to you know stay well back, uh, don't get too close and examine my face closely. Mm-hmm. I mean, even even so, I I found the whole setup like a little bit comical. Like Akeley just just happens to you know be be set upon by a crippling case of asthma the day that Wilmarth visits and he has to swaddle himself in 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 scarves and it's well it's a little bit like it's a little bit like in the dunwich horror when uh, wizard whateley starts buying a whole lot of cattle and yet his cattle herd never seems to increase and he also converts his house into a big monster holding cell and nobody suspects that it contains a monster that he's feeding enormous amounts of cattle to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i will say that uh uh, this is a, a an excellent way of uh, introducing the idea of doing text props <laughs> um, for uh, it, uh, because it's epistolary. Yeah, because it's epistolary, and and this is the thing. One of the things that Lovecraft does really well is that that's particular uh, uh, storytelling uh, device he uses often. And if you're going to be doing text props, and I like to use them in my games, uh, you know, using uh, a Lovecraftian story as a model is a, a good way of doing setup. Who wants, Absolutely. Who wants to take a stab at describing the Mego in, in more detail? Their, their origins, their nature, their, their powers? They... Are from uh, a darker region of space, and therefore uh, uh, don't have the same sort of um, physical characteristics of people that uh, started on Earth. Uh, they talk about have them them having crab-like appendages, and they also talk about having uh, tentacles around the, the face, mm-hmm. uh, and that they have wings that. Uh, not all of their race can use them to travel in space, mm-hmm. but this particular group can. Well, they, they, they don't all have wings. The, the Vermont v- 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 variety of Mego has, has wings, but others, others don't, uh, I think is, is what is said. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think certainly if you had a Mego and a Grell and a Grick and a Beholder and you were asked to pick out which one was not a classic D&D monster from that lineup, I think it would, you would have a hard time uh, fingering the Mego. In- yeah. Interestingly enough, when, when the Mego eventually did make their way into the Pathfinder role-playing game, they, they, were, they were classified as, as plant monsters rather than uh, aberrations because they, they are described as being the fungi out of, out of space. Absolutely. I was actually looking through the Mystery 4 to look at these creatures in order to actually look there. And they were a CR6 plant monster for all intents and purposes. And they are and, fun guys. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Oh, what's actually particularly interesting is they were actually using the Iron Gods Adventure Path in the section that almost feels like a side quest, the Brain Collectors. Well, they, 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 they first showed up, as, as far as I know, in the, in the uh, Carrion Crown 
uh, at Adventure Path in chapter, I think, five, four. Uh, the Ilmarsh one. Yes. Okay, right, that was, yeah, that was part four. It was, then that's basically a Shadow Over Innsmouth um, pastiche. Well, it was, it was a mashup of a whole bunch of things. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, here's Lovecraft. No, really. Exactly. What's now, what's here's... great is is that they they announced at Gen Con this year that in 2016 they'll be doing the Strange Aeons Adventure Path, which will be all Lovecraft monsters, and it, it's a Pathfinder Adventure Path. So you you fight them. You of don't, course. You don't. Y- yes. So. Well, that's awesome. Like, well, like you were um, saying. I'm... Sorry. Go on. Uh, I was just going to go off on a little bit of a tangent and say that while I. Yeah, I'm just sick unto death of Pathfinder and 3.5 and its structural problems just drive me crazy. I love the books that Paizo puts out. They're gorgeous and they're fun to read. Sure. Uh, they I put up maybe too, too much of them, but you know, that's, a, that's a different uh, conversation. Exactly. Uh, now, it, it, it also seems to me that, that the Amigo have, have some kind of mind-altering powers because whenever someone is, is, is talking to them or one of their, their agents, there's this weird background humming noise and people seem to find what whatever they're saying more more agreeable than they than they normally would so the interpretation that i i put on that is that the migo they don't speak with with voices mm-hmm. and instead they are communicating telepathically, though Lovecraft never explicitly says this, they're communicating telepathically uh, when they're actually speaking, they're just making the buzzing sounds and things that show up on those recordings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't form words. The, the words are something that are uh, you know, appearing in the brain of the person that they're speaking to. At least that's the, that's the interpretation that well, didn't, didn't that I the, put on it. The, the record that Wilmarth gets... It it, it, it it had the buzzing, but it it also had what we assumed to be Migo talking English. With the buzzing. Did it? Because it had... I, I got the sense that there was a human collaborator that they had who was right, doing there was, the... Right, uh, there was a human talking, but I, I mean, it, 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 it might have been that, that the human was was in, interpreting the, the Migo buzzing. I mean, yeah, this, this, this is definitely a a story you could you could read several times and 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 see different different things yes, uh, but the idea that maybe they were using some of that translation devices like they were using with the brain to do some degree of the translation but i'm i'm also thinking about about the part where uh wilmarth meets uh noyes and just something about the way noyes is is talking wilmarth just just finds is 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 unable to uh, you know think clearly is 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 unable to object to anything Noyes has to say, and there's there's also the case where the um, uh, the the package is stolen, and if, if I'm remembering correctly, the um, Akeley is trying to send a send a package to Wilmarth. It, it it gets intercepted, and and when Wilmarth in and in, investigates, he hears this story about a, a strange man who just who just came up and and started talking, and the the package deliverer guy had a had a hard time thinking. Yeah, it's basically so, static. Yeah, evil Jedi. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking over the story now, and I'm saying that they are explicitly referred to as buzzing voices that are separate from the human voices. So my mistake there. 
Yeah, well, I was under the impression they basically possessed certain machines that produced a buzzing imitation of human speech consistently throughout the story here. And that's one of the reasons I think they were using the puppet in the first place was kind of to act as an intermediary, plus to try to get close to the professor in question. But they had, just, had like a they had like a voter, you think? Well, might have been. It's part of the fun when it comes down to stuff like this because. They're basically having the metal cylinders look like something, you know, if everything else feels more like weird magical seance magic, the actual brain boxes felt more like pulp science in their aspect. You know, you had the can, you had the multiple little dials and knobs and stuff like that. And while you couldn't identify the material, basically the metal cylinders felt like they were, well, something you'll see on a 50s B movie, which may have been where they got the idea from, was from the story. The brain in a jar, classic uh, pulp uh, villain right there. Well, Wiki- Wikipedia says that the idea of keeping a human brain alive in a jar to enable travel in, in areas inhospitable to the body might have been inspired by the book The World, the Flesh, and the Devil by J.D. Bernal, which describes and suggests the feasibility of a similar device. The book was published in 1929, just a year before Lovecraft wrote the story. Sweet. Cool. So well, didn't didn't Rene Descartes uh, speculate about being a brain in a jar, with all of his sensory input being fed to him by an evil genius? Uh, you would know. That does sound familiar. It does sound I, like something Descartes would say. I wonder whether Descartes actually used that phrase, uh, or whether it's something that my college professors just told me. Well... Hmm. I would have to pull out Descartes' meditations and look it up, and I'm not about to do that. All right, so. does, does anyone have any final comments about Whisperer in Darkness or the Mego? Uh, this is the only one in, in this set of three that I uh, did not was not intimately familiar with beforehand, and I enjoyed the read. Awesome. All right, listeners, you should read this story, and you will enjoy it also. All right, let us let us move on to the shadow over Innsmouth, which is probably uh, the the most famous of, of of the trio of tales that we're talking about today, and and the most directly tied to Dungeons and Dragons. So we're probably going to spend the most time tonight on on it. The shadow over Innsmouth was written uh, in November and December of 1931 and was published in April of 1936. It is the only one of Lovecraft's tales to be published in in book format during Lovecraft's own lifetime, the rest being published uh, in in magazines and such. Uh, The Shadow over Innsmouth features the lonely and decrepit town of Innsmouth, and it introduces us to the uh, fishy deep ones, although I'm, I'm not sure they're called deep ones in the actual story. Um, Jeff, why don't why don't you tell us as best as you can recall the the history of the town of Innsmouth as it is related in this story? The history of the town. Okay, so once upon a time there was this town called Innsmouth. That was not a particularly exciting or interesting town. It was a little fishing village on the uh, east coast of Massachusetts. Um, It was not going real well as uh, the economy of the region shifted. And then one of the leading citizens of the town, a 
uh, merchant ship captain by the name of uh, Marsh, apparently Obed Marsh. Um, Obed Marsh made a deal with frog people that he discovered on some distant South Pacific island. Uh, mm-hmm. The frog people gave him enormous amounts of gold, and in exchange, he had his uh, basically had his like his family intermarry with the frog people. The frog people immigrated to Innsmouth and um, established a city uh, underwater, uh, just off the coast. Um, they interbred with the denizens of Innsmouth, and they drove out of town everybody who wasn't. Uh, who wasn't part of their their cult, and uh, things continued on for a while until one of the uh, one of the uh, the members of Innsmouth who uh, who got kicked out uh, came back and investigated, got some of the news, uh, figured out some of what went on, uh, told the federal government and the federal government rounded up everybody put them into camps and dynamited the whole big thing yeah this the, the this story actually begins with with the narrator with the narrator telling us about the the government raid on on Innsmouth and and there's there's dynamite involved and there's there there's a submarine that that fires torpedoes into the depths and we we spend the rest of the story finding out why all, all of this, this was done. This, this is probably one of the most actiony of of all of Lovecraft's uh, stories. Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't call it my favorite of Lovecraft stories because I think The Whisperer in Darkness is my favorite. But I would probably call it, like technically speaking, the best of his stories. It has a tremendously solid structure to it. it it's also certainly one of his, his most iconic. I mean, uh, e- even even people who don't know Lovecraft all that well generally kind of know the Shadows of Innsmouth story because they've seen it done a few times. Um, you know, it, it lots of movies in the fifties essentially had this as a uh, uh, as a premise. Creatures from the Black Lagoon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah if if it if it wasn't for the fact that that the Deep Ones are are clearly evil and and are sacrificing babies and planning to murder all of all of mankind you could you could almost say that this is a story about uh, about racism right i mean this is this is the a, a classic tale of degenerate humans who are who are up to no good uh clearly you know merely because they've they've interbreeded with with lesser lesser beings yeah, well, I mean, it's a story about racism written by a guy who was seriously, seriously racist. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dracula. Yeah. Dracula is a story about is a, a story about racism, right? It's a story about those those darn foreigners. They want to mm-hmm. move into our country and and bite our daughters on on the necks and and steal our jobs. Well, it's also a story about sexual repression. But um... well, the thing is. Uh, if you didn't have the horrific elements here, this would basically be a reskinning of Alien Nation with aquatic critters. You know, they, they come in, migrants come in, they move in, they bring their own ways of beliefs and all that. They just have to be horrific in order to do so, and they end up intermingling with the local population. Yeah. And nobody wants to get near it because of that. And then as they dig away from the onions, can you find out how bad the deprivations were, ultimately? 
like what particularly I got a kick out of was the usage of churches and how all the churches were more or less abandoned except for one. And that one, well, I will let someone else discuss that one. Starry wisdom. Exactly. The the, uh, the esoteric order of Dagon. Yes. So our our protagonist is Robert Olmsted, and he he was not kicked out of Innsmouth. The I, th- I believe his story is that uh, one of Obed Marsh's daughters was uh, too human, so she was she was sent away and and ed- educated in Europe and had no knowledge of the the goings on in in Innsmouth. But she she did pass along her sort of fishy genes. Yeah, and that was Olmsted's what, grandmother? Grandmother yes. or great grandmother, something something like like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, since at the end of the story he finds out that he's part deep one, he begins to transition into an aquatic immortal stage of life, uh, makes comparisons to some mysterious happenings that had dealt with his uh, his one uncle who disappeared, the other uncle who shot himself. Mm-hmm. Um and that that part and, almost feels like a like a second part of the story that's that's sort of tacked on at the at the end because it, except for one one line during the part where he's actually in Innsmouth it, it doesn't really come up until he's left Innsmouth and and starts to and, and starts to go into his his own family family history. Yeah. Well, I mean, from like a structural point of view, the story has to go somewhere. There, there that tension has to reach a reach a climax and the climax of Olmsted fleeing the city is um yeah it's it's, it's just not enough mm-hmm. Nor- normally it, it it would be i think i think most of the stories that we've read up to this point end end with someone ru- running right, away but that's or- the but that's the difference between a merely good lovecraft story and one of the like five or six that he wrote that are really great i suppose all right, so what? What this, do we? He, he kicks it up a notch. That's what I'm saying. This is a, this is a story that really keeps escalating and escalating. Uh, it would. I don't think it would be nearly as strong if uh, if not for that revelation at the end about Olmsted's family. Mm-hmm. I, well, the 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 nice sort of racist undertones of of the whole story is sort of underlined by the fact that the guy discovers that he's partly the race that we're being all racist about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is sort of why it, why it kind of works. Yeah. And and it's a, it's a kind of horror that uh, Lovecraft, I think, uh, felt very personally. Well, Wiki- Wikipedia says that uh, he... That, that Lovecraft believed he had in- inherited his own physical... And mental weaknesses from from his his parents, both both of whom had died in mental hospitals, and so so he he might have been been concerned over his own his own you know short shortcomings next to his new New England brethren whom he you know fairly fa- fairly worshipped. So so who 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 would like to tell us more about uh, the 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 deep ones? And what they're all about, and and how they operate. Chris. Okay. Well, let's start with the basics here. A basic description, right from the text itself. I think their predominant color was a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish. 
with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on hind legs and sometimes on four. Their croaking, baying voices held all the dark shades of expression, which their staring faces lacked. And additionally, on top of that, besides the actual physiological differences here, one of the things you notice that they essentially seem to have a predominant huge amounts of fascination with jewelry. Like, they used to come up with a whole bunch of stuff that kept showing up again and again. It wasn't just the gold, it was the fact it was really wrought in almost an alien fashion. All this material they were getting from in order to do so. And that ultimately, that's how they were able to basically sustain the economy while it was basically decaying at the seams, the town, especially after the Civil War. Right. Their their sort of plan is to is to again kind of kind of like the Migo, where we're told that well they could easily wipe out all the humans, but rather than do that, they're going to they're going to go through this this convoluted plan where they they in, they interbreed with the humans and slowly take over Earth that way. Um, we're we're told they worship uh, Father Dagon and Mother Hydra, and they also worship Cthulhu, mm-hmm. and they live in a city called. And anyone want to try and try and pronounce it? I'm not uh, even sure. Yaniti. Sure. Yes. That is what I call it when I'm playing Arkham Horror because it is easy to say if you mispronounce it deliberately. Yahanthle is the way I'm going to choose to pronounce it, just staring at it. Um, so yeah, they've, they've got a city that is, is under the ocean just off the coast of Innsmouth, which, which ends up being torpedoed, uh, but not destroyed, we're told. Um, and, and, and again, we're, we're told uh, that, that the Deep Ones are in, invincible and you know, petty human technology can't destroy them, but that could just be villain gloating. I mean, yeah. I got the vibe that they're actually kind of weak in comparison to some of the other Lovecraftian races, that the main reason they survived is because they were able to stay deep enough compared to the submarine technology of the day. Basically, they would end up migrating lower, which is why they're able to stay in the shadows. I mean... The the Call of Cthulhu role playing game tends to take to take the stance that most of Lovecraft's monsters are in, invincible and even even with modern nuclear weapons, there's there's nothing you can do because uh, they're just they're just gonna win. But if you if you didn't want to take that route, if you wanted to play a game where you actually go and fight fight the deep ones, the the the, the assertion that there's nothing you can do, heroes. Could you know? Could just be Skeletor saying, "There's nothing you can do to defeat me, He-Man. Your powers are useless." You know that 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 sort of thing. Yeah, if I'm going to pick one of the uh, Lovecraftian races and declare that it's the one that is vulnerable to bullets, I think it would probably be the Deep Ones. Yeah, uh, unless you can, unless unless the uh, Chocho are count as an alien race. I would. I would. You know what? I. I would put the the Migo and 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 the Deep Ones side by side and say they're they're about e- equivalent. They're 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 the foot soldiers. They're 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 the orcs, so to speak, of this of this setting. 
Yeah, and it's probably affected by bullets too. I would think. Yeah, mm. but probably, probably. I mean, they're 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 made of fungus. I mean, have you have you ever shot shot a mushroom? Pretty sure a mushroom can't deflect bullets. So, there you go. Well, you know, they're they're able to withstand vacuum. Uh, though conversely, the deep ones are able to withstand the terrible pressures at the bottom of the sea. So I guess that was a wash. Well, I mean, Lovecraft says that they, that they fly through the through the ether of of space. So like. Did had had humanity not figured out that space was a vacuum at this time? Like, did did we still think that space was full of full of ether? No, that was was not uh, was not then a current theory. It just it, sounds better than vacuum, I think. Yeah, and I think it was probably just him being poetic. Okay. Alternatively, it could be that in Lovecraft's mind, there's like a hyperspace dimension, which he was referring to as the ether. Uh, so it's like when a vessel goes, at, goes to warp, they, they shift over into the ether and they fly around in the ether and then they come back uh, into normal space. But that's, I think, meeting that idea way more than halfway. It, it, it also could be that the Migo don't take air into their bodies, so there's, so there's no air pressure to burst out of them and make them explode. Yeah. At the same time, if they try, even if they travel at regular speeds between Pluto to Earth, that's going to take at least thirty years based on standard timing. You know, well, as, as, as we're going to learn in the, in the next story, uh, and if if you have advanced knowledge of, of of mathematics, you don't you don't need, you don't need to travel through real space. Anyways. Well, before we move on to the next story, though, I think that we should spend at least a little time talking about what we've alluded to, uh, the, the connection between Shadow Over Innsmouth and Dungeons and & Dragons, uh, because it's, there's definitely much more of one than with The Whisperer in Darkness mm-hmm. or with um, Dreams in the Witch House. Mm-hmm. Well, I, could, I can think of at, at least three creatures in Dungeons & Dragons, the, the Sahuagin, the... Kuo Toa and the Bullywugs, which which could have been inspired by by the Deep Ones. All all three of those are somewhat different takes on fishoid or amphibian humanoids. Yeah, I mean, with at least the first two, I get the sense that those names, Kuo Toa and Sahagwan, are which as I could be mistaken, but I don't think they come from mythology or folklore. Um, I get the sense that those names are a deliberate attempt to evoke something Lovecrafty, but not exactly Lovecrafty. Agreed. And on top of that, there's a really cool old series of modules back in first edition that was known as the U Trilogy, the Sinister Secret of Salt Marge, Danger of Dunwater, and the Final Enemy. Where the first one, well, it is, takes a twist instead of actually using the Lovecraftian horrors right off the bat. The setup is almost feels like your old New Easterner town because you basically enter an old house in the middle of nowhere that was used by smugglers that ultimately ends up with you underwater fighting the Sokogin in this process. And it probably so this, it for the first time. The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh is not one of the classic D&D modules that I have a lot of familiarity with. Can you, uh, can you unpack it a little bit more for us? Why, certainly. It starts at a very low level. It's You're going to a town where you are hearing mysterious traveling at night, coming from a house in the middle of nowhere. And because it's one of the old inventions, it basically becomes a dungeon hack. 
instead of fighting Lovecraftian horrors in the story, you find out that they are smugglers, smuggling weapons. And you end up going to the second part, where you end up going to a Lizardman kingdom. Now, is that U2, or is it the second half of U1 that you're describing now? Oh, no, I'm in U2. I'm in the U2. U2? Okay. 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 Where you basically have to enter this Lizardman kingdom, because they're the ones that are buying all the weapons. And then you find out why. Because they're prepping against the Sogan assault that's going to happen. And you end up not so much teaming up with them because it was first edition. But they basically send you down there assuming you don't ruffle too many feathers and kill too many of them. Mm-hmm. To fight Sogwin on their behalf. So basically the entire third adventure is underwater. Fighting the horrors. And they have the, the temples. They have the whole the shark acolytes that we're all familiar with. Like A lot of what we believe for Sogwin came from U3 in the original material. I, it's interesting. Some... Sorry, please continue. Uh, I, I was just going to also point out that there's another adventure that has some echoes of it, uh, Temple of the Frog. I oh, think, yes. Uh, Classic. Yeah, well, I think Temple of the Frog is a slightly different beast since, it's a, since the, uh, the villain of that piece is a mad genetic engineer from another planet. Um, but what, I, what sounds interesting to me about this series, U1 through U3, is that it starts with uh, Saltmarsh, which is that the name of the town or the name of the house? Uh, either Saltmarsh way, it's something. I mean, either way, it's something really Innsmouthy, right? Saltmarsh. And um, it ends with Sahagwin, but there's apparently a lot of interstitial stuff in between, um, which probably just goes to show to the, uh, the patchwork nature of early Dungeons and & Dragons and adventure design, just tossing in everything that uh, seemed like a good idea, uh, such as you know, the aforementioned uh, mad genetic engineer from another planet. It's funny how Frog, Temple of the Frog seems to come up in almost every single one of Appendix Ends. <laughs> does, does anyone happen to know where the Kuo Toa first sh- showed up? As far uh, as I know, it was in Fiend Folio originally. That's the first time I remember it. I don't think it actually was in another module, but they're obviously essentially fish under dark dwellers. And they worship Baloop Poop? Or whatever Blib- the heck they're doing. Poop. Thank you. Who, yeah. It was made during the era of first edition Deadies and Demigods, where, you know, obviously they made the cut, but it was a lot more profane than some of the later gaming material that came later. And they were definitely cultists to the point where they had one of the esteemed ones when it came to the Koato was the monitor who essentially was a monk. You know, a monk underwater, which I guess works, but I'm, you probably had to do a lot of hand waving for that one. Works as well as anything else underwater, I think. True enough. I always thought that the Kuatoa and the Sahagwan felt like uh, goblins and orcs in that there was really no like structural need for Dungeons and Dragons to have both of them. But yeah. they, but they just did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, but the, the, the Kuotoa seemed to be the least uh, infamous of the aquatic races. I mean, the, the Sahuagin are, are these ferocious shark fishmen. The, the Bullywugs are these funny, Frogmen and and the Kuotoa have almost no personality. They're they're just these green, am, amphibian things that worship a god with a with a with a funny name. Well, I always got the vibe that they're basically what if a crazed cultist, to, you know, what if crazed cultists actually worked, you know, but they worship an inhuman god. If anything, they're the most Lovecraftian of the three races because one, they're stuck in the underdark, and two, they're worshiping a truly alien god. Are they are they underdark? I thought they were aquatic. 
They're aquatic under dark primarily, yeah. whereas the Sogwin are more their ocean side, more or less. In fact, mm. I've heard of described as the ultimate sore winners because they usually are the most dominant race of the underwater species civilizations because of their sheer amounts of their warlike nature. Well, except for the Aboleths. Well, yeah, it goes without saying. Well, uh, also, they, this is not the only uh, classic uh, D&D uh, icon in the story. You also have the exposition NPC. That's uh, right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably Lovecraft's... Oh, I would say that this is Lovecraft's most memorable exposition NPC. Yeah, that uh, uh, that that uh, ticket salesman really, really knew the area very, very well. Especially considering he didn't wasn't from there. Um, I actually got a real kick out of Zedok Allen, aka the town drunk, and how it took forever for him to open up. But he basically started explaining everything because he was the ultimate expedition dump to the narrator. Exactly. To the exactly. And yeah. then basically, as he continues, he basically goes one line too far. And then he realizes he goes one line too far, and he basically knows his life is forfeit. So that's when he finally decides, oh, what the hell, I'm going to spell whatever else is so at least somebody can get out of this. Mm-hmm. And then he's Yeah, found- I mean, there's, yeah there's, there's plenty of exposition delivering NPC units in Lovecraft stories. Um, but I think that Zadok is the, uh, he's, he's the one that I like. What do we what do we want to say about the government getting in involved? I mean, because that's that's a really unusual element of this story. Like in 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 most of these stories, the hero says, "Well, I can't go to to the authorities; they'll think I'm crazy." Or the hero goes to the authorities and they think he's crazy and lock him up. Here, the hero goes to the, to the authorities with really no physical evidence, just just some wild tales. And the the FBI basically sweeps in, uh, dynamites a bunch of houses, and tor- torpedoes the the bottom of the of of the ocean. Yeah, they round up all the deep one hybrids and put them into concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which but, yeah, <laughs> when, when, you, when you come across concentration camps, wait, what? <laughs> well, to be fair, this was before World War Two. Would they do the it, same? Well, thing I mean, yeah, and in another sense, that makes it all the more baffling. Yeah, um, I feel like maybe Lovecraft was playing on reference on uh, accounts of the Filipino insurrection because that's the only like analogous event that um, not entirely that true. Uh, in World War One, especially in U.S. and Canada, a lot of Germans and people of Eastern European stock got sent over to camps. They weren't nearly as prominent or as extensive as the ones that happened in Japan. But this isn't the first time they've used, you know, camps to separate people of certain ethnicities from the other locations. Just ask just the Native about Americans. In, yeah, well, I'm thinking about it in terms of big U.S. military action on a, I don't know, maybe, that's a, maybe I'm making a distinction. Oh, no, no, they, they go in full gonzo, and it actually is kind of impressive. But it's almost like they have the big gonzo scene in the first three paragraphs, and then you missed it. What, didn't they have something similar in the rats in the wall, um, where when it's all said and done, they blow up the caves uh, under the castle because really something's going on down there we don't like. Yeah, and there's 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 police action in in Call of Cthulhu where where the police raid the swamps and and blow something up with dynamite. Yeah, 
In New Orleans, yeah. That's yeah. true. But this just seems to be on a different scale than any of that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the submarine is what puts it up uh, over yeah, I mean, the top. The FBI didn't really exist at this point in history. It was, um, oh, I forget what it was called, but it, was, it wasn't it the was FBI. It was G-Man or whatever, wasn't it? I don't know. But this, like, this, this single incident is, is, is basically the, the, the excuse any Call of Cthulhu-based game has for, for action, right? Yeah. yeah, well, sure. uh, it's, uh, it's the, the uh, seed of Delta Green, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The um, secret uh, government conspiracy of guys who would go out in a rowboat and cast, summon Deep One, and then a Deep One would show up and they would shoot it with a shotgun, and then they would repeat that process until no more Deep Ones appeared, which was my favorite part of the book, Delta Green. The... the uh... Uh, there's a series of books called The Laundry uh, by Charles Strauss, who's an old D&D writer, actually. He used to work uh, at, uh, for TSR for a while, uh, He, uh, which is uh, proposes the notion that all the Lovecraftian stuff is more or less real, and uh, the British uh, spy agency that has to deal with it. And uh, Cubicle 7 has a role-playing game all about The Laundry. Right, and mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. one of the places in there is they have a town in England called Innsmouth, which uh, people who are halfway between essentially deep ones and humans are settled <laughs> and kept away from uh, uh, everyone else. As they should be. No Agreed. good, no good fishmen. Degenerate monsters, yes. just like the just like the Dutch. <laughs> and the French, the filthy Italians, the barbarians, you know, Laplanders. There's like five or six counties in England and a chunk of Denmark. And if you're from anywhere except those places, you're just screwed. Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we've just offended all of our listeners. Um, <laughs> do, all right. Does, does, does anyone have, have any final words to say, say about Innsmouth or the Deep Ones or government raids, or anything about this story. I only have one last request. What were the names of the three families? I it eludes me right now. They basically make up in its mouth. Marsh was one. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't remember any others. Gilman was another. Gilman, yeah. Which, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and of course, uh, the narrator is Olmstead. Exactly. Yeah, but he's he's Olmstead because his from from his his Ohio family, so yeah, he's 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 actually revealed to be the dis- descendant of of Obed Marsh. Oh, the uh, the Waits, the Gilmans, and the Elliots. Thank you. Okay, I just wanted that clarified before we moved on to the next one. <laughs> well, that was that was real important. Yeah, well, you know the uh, the main character of Dreams of the Witch House is named Gilman, so I, I get where you're coming from there. But I'm not. I don't know that there's an explicit connection, uh, or maybe if it's just a. He he may have had a list of last names since he used weight in a different place too. I'm I'm sure that sure. that 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 there is is some mythos fiction somewhere which which attempts to connect these these two. Well, s- I'd be surprised if there's just one piece of mythos fiction that attempts mm-hmm. to connect those. <laughs> I'm sure there are, there there are reams of mythos fiction. All right. August Sterling probably wrote five or six of them by himself. That's 
probably true. All right. Uh, if if you haven't guessed by now, uh, the next story we are going to talk about is the dreams in the witch house, which was written uh, early in 1932 and published in Weird Tales in July of 1933. The story features a student who is studying at Miskatonic University, and he is staying in the witch house, a, 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 a house that is haunted by a witch by the name of Keziah Mason, and the house has some weird geometry it's he's he's staying in this room with weird angles that suggest space between the walls but when you're standing outside the building you you can't see the space between the walls uh and he 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 starts out having having dreams where this witch comes comes to visit him and it's 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 a very salem type of witch right like like he she takes him to meet the devil in in the woods there's stuff about sacrificing a child, and the the story is, is about uh, Walter Gilman, our our protagonist, slowly going going crazy, and then he dies, uh, which which is pretty much the arc of a lot of Lovecraftian uh, protagonists. Uh, Jeremiah, would would you like to fill in the gaps in my in my tale? Well. Um... For the most part, uh, you covered the high points. I think that the uh, the student here is a mathematician and science student, and is fascinated with quantum mechanics and higher orders of math. And this opens the door for him to also t- make ties to folklore and superstition that Miskatonic University is ideal for studying. And uh, allows him to start seeing the supernatural relations to math. And by doing that, he uh, discovers that the witch house witch is real. Uh, and so is the familiar uh, Jink- Brown Jenkin. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he slowly got- falls under their power and explores the universe. And then eventually comes to his senses and thinks, "Wait, no, I got to stop this." And then he dies. Right. So the the witch has a has a has a familiar name named uh, Brown Brown Jenkin, which is which is a a, a white fanged furry thing with hands like like a like a human. And this this is yet another Lovecraftian creature that shows up in in Pathfinder. I think it's just called the Rat Thing, and I. Th- believe there is actually a witch in the first volume of Jade Regent that has a familiar named Brown Jenkin or or at least a very strong reference to Brown Brown Jenkin. Mm-hmm. Uh so Brown Jenkin shows up again and again in this in this story and um the one of the other villains is the black man who we we are pretty sure is Nyarlathotep. And when when we last saw Nyarlathotep, he he was the Black Pharaoh in in uh, uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, but here he's he's acting more like the Puritan Devil. He's he's hanging out in the woods. He's making pacts with witches. He's uh, encouraging people to sacrifice babies. And then we have our our witch, 
who uh, we're, we're told operates through her knowledge of mathematics for for the the most part. And I made the mark before we started re- recording that like th- this is not the only science fiction story to you know have have mathematics have this have this strange power to traverse space and time but i i'm pretty sure s- s- simply knowing that space can can bend does does not allow you to fold space with your with your bare hands like you 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 can't bend space and time by writing an an equation on a on a chalkboard and yet this this witch seems to walk through dimensions and and through solid matter simply with her with her her knowledge of ma- mathematics which which i find i find hilarious i i think that the there's a certain point when you start reading about uh physics and specifically quantum mechanics where it does sound like magic uh you know when they start talking about a, an ob- a, a particle is both a particle and a wave and it exists in multiple points depending on which uh point you're observing at the time so it's not a a, a huge jump to figure out to, to to go from there to you can gain an understanding of the math involved that allows you to manip- manipulate that um uh, I I can I can sort of see the the progression that leads there. I you know it won't, but I can see how it would get there. As 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 a as a lay person, I I I at least want to see some some kind of apparatus, some some kind of machine that 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 goes whoop whoop. If we're if we're if we're if we're going to be bending space space and time, but that's just that's just me. Well, the thing whoop. is, a lot of his powers and the situations here, especially when it comes to Walter Gilman himself. It's not that he basically mixes lore with mathematics and, you know, non-Lakilian calculus and quantum physics. But his power source seems to be when he dreams. And then he basically becomes, he essentially sleep jumps, dimensional jumps when he does so. Well, I think to the extent that it's possible to fabricate a coherent um, metaphysic of this kind of magic, the, the, the math-based magic. I think the idea is that by visualizing the equations, by um, focusing on their meaning, you put yourself into a, a particular mental state that allows you to manipulate the world around you, which I think ties into the fact that Gilman is doing it mostly when he's asleep in his dreams. Because it's not necessarily something that one would have conscious control over, but it does kind of sidestep the need for a for a for a machine or for external uh, apparatus. Right. So, what 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 makes this story really confusing is is that most of it seems to be happening through these through these uh, dreams. This this witch seems to be almost uh, courting. Um, Walter, she's she's trying to like she she comes and she she teaches him what whatever it is that that she knows so that so that he can do it him himself and then he wakes up and, and only really has has half memories of what he's been he's been doing he he remembers the knowledge that 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 he gained but not really 
how how he gained it, I guess. And sh- she seems to be through, throughout this story trying to to convince him to come out to the woods with her and sacrifice babies because that's so much fun. And come meet my friend Nyarlathotep. Nyar- he is an awesome guy to hang out with. Yeah. See this the. This is a the rare Lovecraft story that really just does not work for me. I feel like the motivations of the um, the witch and uh, why all of this is happening in the way that it does is really unexplained. I feel like there's a lot of nothing that happens. That this is a story that really could be written in you know one, two, uh, three thousand words at most. And instead, it just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. At, at at one point, uh, Walter goes sleepwalking, and and he seems to be drawn to a point, like up 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 in the in the sky, and we, we never quite find out what's going on with with that because that abruptly stops. After... It never it never leads to anything. It, right. There's not a there's not a sense of progression or buildup. It's like one of those TV shows that uh, came out after Lost got really popular, where it, there were like seven or eight episodes of like cool, evocative things happening that nobody understood, and people would exchange meaningful glances, and then the show would get canceled, and so nothing would ever get explained. But it was probably for the best that the show got canceled, because the showrunners clearly had no particular idea in their head other than, let's point the camera at some pretty people making uh, serious faces. Well, you, you could also be be describing Lost. Or X-Files. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Lost, Lost and X-Files both had a version of a, um, a version of what their final uh, narrative ended up being when they started. They didn't start completely cold. But that's, that's kind of uh, damning with faint praise. Right. Since uh, both of those went so the, off of the- pretty story the the sort of climax of, of the story is is Walter uh finally comes to his senses during during one of these uh midnight strolls and he tries to strangle Kazaya and he he either kills her or simply in, incapacitates her and Nyarlathotep just stands aside and is is kind of watching because that's what Nyarlathotep does. We're 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 told in the role playing game that that he's sort of he's sort of a Loki character. He's he's sort of a mischief maker. He just he just does things just to see what the humans will do, basically. Um, so Walter Walter fights with Kazaya and runs away, and later later on he has his heart e- eaten out of him by Brown Jenkin, who just kind of appears in the middle of his, of his bed one night and just like eats a hole clear, clear through him, which is kind of gross, kind of reminiscent of Nightmare on Elm Street, actually, because it's, it's described that he's, he's writhing around in his bed and blood's just coming out of him and no one knows where it's, where it, where it's, it's, it's coming from. Well, what's interesting about the story is he keeps trying to block the rat hole and no matter any efforts they does, it fails miserably because apparently he's hardly an accomplice. And the is that, that interesting, oh, yeah. though? Is that interesting, really? I'm not sure that it's fair to call that interesting. Fair enough. Uh, this this story just does, doesn't didn't grab me the way pretty much. Uh, certainly not the way the Whisperer in Darkness or Shadow over Ensmith did. Yeah, I'd say the high point was when he finally got to Azathoth's throne, but that was more almost color text. That could have been like written in a paragraph and a half. 
Yeah, I mean, to the extent that there's there's anything here, it's a series of cool, evocative descriptions of scenes and images. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would it would just be so much better if that was in service to some kind of interesting narrative. Yeah, I mean, and 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 him having his his heart eaten out is is is, is not even even the end because we're we're told that a year later a mysterious breeze uh, knocks over 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 the house. And in these in these weird spaces that no one could access, we we find the witch's bones. We find the bones of of Brown Jenkin, and we find the bones of of all the children that she's been stealing over the years. So was was Keziah Mason dead the whole time? Did Walter Gilman kill her? What was really going on? Eh. I don't. I don't know if it's more of a failure of the story that I don't have any idea how to answer these questions, or if it's more of a failure of the story that I don't really care what the answers are. Jeremiah, what did what did you think of, of this of this tale? I've uh, been super harsh on it, so yeah, I I am not as uh, harsh on it as uh, Jeffrey is, but uh, it it it's one of those stories of you know people point to as typical Lovecraftian stuff. And you can see why. I mean, it's got the sort of science and magic intersection and the the universe is out to, you know, do terrible things to you. It's got a lot of the Lovecraft elements, but it doesn't feel like some of the, the st- stories that I particularly enjoyed more, uh, mainly because most of them tended to s- drift more towards uh, science fiction. Uh, and this one has has a classic sort of uh, uh, there's an evil witch in the woods kind of st- story like you would hear around camp when you were growing up. And it's got that element to it. And he's trying to combine his usual style with that. And I can see where it doesn't work. There are things here I can take from it. I mean, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 the. The witch is pretty much a, a hag from D and D, and you can certainly use it as a a primer on how to uh, write an un- remarkably unpleasant hag. Right. She uh, could she could even even be a be a night hag, which is which is yeah. the kind that visits you in 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 nightmares. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there there are D and D things that you can pull from it, but uh, you know, as a structure structurally, the story is not as as solid as as many of his other ones, and I think it's because he's trying to combine two different things that don't necessarily work together. Yeah, he's trying to do a Salem witch trial movie with the same time as doing his Lovecraft mythos, and they're not mixing well. He did it. He did that much better in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. I, I do. Um, uh, one note I, that did come up in my mind when I was rereading the story um, when they're talking about the the black man. Uh, which really he makes a point early on, like this is this is far blacker than any any guy is going to be. Uh, I kept thinking of uh, the show Hannibal, where they have occasional visions of what Hannibal looks like inside the uh, World Graham's head, and it's always this sort of oily black with horns. Uh, like a like an elk or something, and and uh, with ho- hooves, and that is what I picture. You know, the 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 black man in this story to look like, um, and 
I, I, I think uh, early on he establishes that's what he looks like, and then later it's he's described as you know a, an ordinary l- large uh, black man who runs off into the woods is what people report seeing. Robert E. Howard in several Conan stories uh, describes black men who are you know crazy black, really black, super black, so black guys, and um, not African. And I think that uh, that's something that goes back to actual uh, European witch uh, mythology or folklore, a a black man out in the woods. Well, well, I mean, this this is is the first story where where I've encountered Neuralathotep as he's been described to me by by the Call of Cthulhu role playing game. You know, in he's he's. In, in in that setting, he is like his, his role in the game is to show up, give give humans a you know a, a magical artifact or tell them something that they shouldn't know, and then just stand back and watch what they do because it's 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 funny. He's, he's he's presented as a lot like Loki, specifically the Marvel movies version of Loki. Yeah, I I, I think I even even said that. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Or, or even, even, even the Joker, right? He's he's chaos in incarnate. He's a he's a dog chasing cars, etc., etc. Oh no, he et, makes et you chase the car. What's that? He makes you chase the car. That's what makes it such more insidious. Yes, yes, he make he makes you chase the car. That's that I I like that. Um, okay, so we 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 did not like this story. I I, I thought it. It had some good evocative elements, but you're you're right. As it it, it it really doesn't go anywhere. the The conclusion is is really just just kind of vague and not in a creepy way. Um, does Does anyone have any final comments about dreams in the witch house? It's probably the closest to anything that might be D and D like because it almost felt like they were doing almost a variation of the astral plane when they were jumping between points and locations here. I don't think I ever heard anything about a silver cord, but I think the visual effects were trying to portray, you know, that interdimensional nature that the astral plane is notorious for. Kind of Doctor Strangey. Yeah, exactly. Or or even some of some of the the outer planes, right? I mean they, they describe him just standing in a place where the where the sky is 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 multicolored and he's he's standing in this weird city this 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 weird alien city so i mean that that could easily be be an outer plane or another planet i i think there's a lot that you could take away from this story as like little pieces that would be cool to integrate into a game like a, a nice bit of imagery like the 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 city of alien uh, beings that you discover, you know, you come across and discover that there's more out there in the universe than just the 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 world that you're used to. The uh, the the witch cult stuff. It, you could pull that and t- turn that into an interesting element in your game. It's not maybe the most structurally uh, great story, but there are a lot of sort of. Uh, things that you could take out and 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 use in your game, and they would be, you know, good story elements. I would I would love to be able to tell a player that he's he's gone to sleep and a rat thing has eaten out his heart, and he's dead. No no saving throw. I feel like that would work in some games, but probably not in Dungeons and Dragons. I think 
we we totally left out of this fiasco. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. We I I I I almost forgot we 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 totally left out of this discussion the the mention of the of the Shoggoth in in Shadows Shadow over over Innsmouth which was which was written the same year as as Mountain as Mountains of Madness which will be our next Lovecraft's s- s- story. Exactly. So uh okay. We we know that that the deep ones were in command of at least one Shoggoth, so they they weren't uh, completely uh, pushovers. Well, that might be because of the, just the nature of the beast. Maybe because Shoggoths are basically just intelligent amoebas. Maybe they were of a lower form, kind of like how humans use cattle, you know, princes of burden and so forth. That the deep ones use the Shoggoths in a similar fashion. Could be. All right. At the Mountains of Madness has a lot more to say about Shoggoths. Yes, our, our our next Lovecraft episode will be uh, the Mountains of Madness, so and in. it's 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 one of the longer stories. So we will we will we will be devoting an entire episode to the Mountains of Madness. Okay, uh, we've been we've we've discussed these three tales in in depth. Does does anyone have any further comments to make about? Uh, Whisperer in Darkness, Shadow over Innsmouth, or Dreams in the Witch House that has not already been made? Well, at the end of every episode of Appendix N, I try to ask myself, is there something about any of, the, any of this that could be applied to a Dungeons & Dragons game in an interesting way? And the thing that strikes me is... Uh, something we talked a bit about a bit in uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, the way the federal government comes down like a hammer on Innsmouth and just uh, you know nukes the site from orbit, so to speak. That's so, that's an option that is never presented as viable in Dungeons and Dragons games. There's always reasons that the king has to entrust this desperate mission to you know a a select group of uh, three to seven people instead of going in with all of the resources that the nation has available. And I think that it may be worth uh, reconsidering that um, to, to look at scenarios where, yeah, if you can get out and you know, get away from the Lich's castle, you can come back with you know, 5,000 fourth-level paladins. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, so the drama is not killing the lich; it's getting out to you know to grab that uh, to to call in the army. Right. the The scenario is not the the king sends you on on a mission, but your your party stumbles upon a thing by accident that that no one knew about, and they have to survive long enough to to get word to the to to the outside. Yeah, and of course, with with spells and teleport and animal messenger and so forth, it, it's something that becomes unworkable pretty quickly. Well, unless uh, you've you've got the mists of Ravenloft. <laughs> well, it's more than that, man. Because ultimately, the reason why the the game punishes you for asking for help, because you then you have to split your XP with all your flunkies and lackeys. Ultimately, that's one well, of the interesting. Well, things if of, you if you die, you don't get any XP. So yeah, that's true. Pick, pick your battles. Oh, and one last thing that might be kind of fun. Dragon Magazine number 12. Yes, yeah, so we're going way back then. I was just looking through the Lovecraftian mythos in Dungeons and Dungeons & Dragons. 
And it's actually kind of fun watching these stats here, and I don't know if they're overpowered or horribly underpowered comparatively. But I'm looking at Azathoth, creator of the universe. His armor class is minus two. His move is infinite. His hit points are 300. He has no magical ability, 20th level fighter. Has resistance to all psychic attacks, but if you kill him, you destroy the universe. Conversely, uh, Great Cthulhu, as I recall, has only 200 hit points, but he regenerates 10 of them around. There was actually another article uh, or a response to that written. It's in Dragon Number 14. And then there's a rebuttal to the response in Dragon Number 16. Ooh. And uh, out, of, out of all of that came the original write-up of the Lovecraftian uh, pantheon in the first printing of Deities and Demigods. Uh, and I, I will add as a, a final note that uh, Lovecraft stories make better backstory for adventures than actual structures for adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most D&D adventures, if you end the game with, well, you're all dead because the this evil is too great for you to defeat. Uh, I believe but, the cry, killer dungeon master. Yeah, Killer Dungeon Master would be would be tough. For a Cthulhu yeah. game, that's what you expect. You go in knowing that. But with a D&D game, these make great backstories. Mm-hmm. Like you can go, okay, what happened here? Uh, well, you know, this scholar started uh, exchanging notes with the, this uh, gentleman farmer up in the uh, backcountry, and he discovered this thing, and then he went missing. And here's his notes. Right, and I, I think I think that's what Pathfinder is doing with strange, strange eons. You 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 are Delta Green. You you are the G-Men go, going in 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 prepared, and you're you're gonna fight the Deep Ones and the Migo and and the Gugs because you've got a Cthulhu slaying knife that's plus nine against against <laughs> Cthulhu's. And well, there, I would I I would also see the Cthulhu tech. Uh, role-playing game, which imagines the Lovecraft mythos in the near future, where the Migo have actually in, in invaded Earth, but uh, we have we have become like the Great Old Ones, and we are able to fight them using our blasphemous tech technologies, and it's it's a really crazy setting. In a plot not unlike Robotech. Yeah, it's it's Robotech plot with Cthulhu mythos instead of uh, Zendradi. Two great tastes that definitely are being forced together. Yes. <laughs> I, I think it works, but... Uh, it does and it doesn't. It's actually some of the, the parts, the actual overall elements are fine, but some of the color text can be kind of skeevy sometimes. Mileage mileage may vary, and I also yeah. haven't completely read through the core rule book, so... Okay, uh, no problem. Yeah, everybody's going to have different, uh, different points at which they're like, this is, I draw the line at this. All right, and with that line drawn in the sand, Jeremiah McCoy, where on the internet can our listeners find you? Uh, the basics of the game uh, dot uh, wordpress dot com or jeremiahmccoy dot com. Chris Constantine, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on my blog at drevrpg.blogspot.ca. On December 5th, we're going to be releasing the Book of Progress, which will be our big book of robots, for lack of a better term. Awesome. And Jeff Wickstrom, when you're not hiding out in your reclusive cabin in upstate Vermont, where can people find you? 
I can be found at jeffwick.com, the number one site on the internet for uh, descriptions of Herodotus's The Histories. Listeners, we hope you have enjoyed our discussion of these three tales by H.P. Lovecraft. You can send us your thoughts and comments in an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line, and that way it will get right to us. Our next episode will focus on three more tales of Conan the Adventurer, and these are named The People of the Black Circle, A Witch Shall Be Born, and Jewels of Gwalur. Following that, we will discuss The Pygmy Planet by Jack Williamson and The Golgotha Dancers by Manly Wade Wellman. Both of these will be combined into one episode since I understand they are fairly short. Our next Lovecraft episode will be a discussion of the masterpiece novel at the Mountains of Madness, so be sure not to miss that. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 24, Selected Stories by H.P. Lovecraft, Part 4. Thanks for listening. We're friends. 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 Ouch. Ouch.